Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. As the 20th century came to a, a close, the church in America was undergoing some massive shifts. The 20th century had actually begun dominated by revivalism, a crusade movement that went across the nation, in fact, all around the English-speaking world where there were large tent meetings, people renting out stadiums and uh, concert halls where they would gather as many as they could from all walks of life and plead with them to make a decision for Christ, to walk an aisle, to be gathered down at the front. Unfortunately, the legacy of revivalism left many people who had some sort of emotional response in one of those meetings, but have never really become devoted, devoted followers of Christ. It left many in America with a calloused feeling towards religion. As the 20th century crossed its midpoint and the baby boomer generation was emerging, the numbers in our overall population were increasing and thus also the number of Christians were increasing day by day. But as a percentage, there was already a decline. Less and less people as a percentage of the whole were willing to make a profession of faith in Christ. Denominational leaders viewed the problem from a top-down perspective, concluding that the efforts of the church needed to focus on the highest institutions of society, and the church therefore became very political, establishing what many came to know as the religious right or the moral majority, as they wanted to be known, a loosely organized group of churches and religious leaders and organization who dedicated millions and millions of dollars as well as hours lobbying political leaders for morality, although not always being particularly articulate about what that morality was or on what basis it is always established. Then as the 20th century came to a close, the moral majority was on the decline, but it was being replaced by the church growth movement, which began somewhat as a study of missions, but quickly evolved into a strategy in the American church. In fact, as applied to the mission field early on by its founder, uh, McGavern, it was a, uh, a colossal failure by his own admission. But in the American church, it gave birth to a whole movement of programs that were launched to appeal to special interest groups and attract them to the church. The most recognizable of those programs that came out of this movement was the establishment of youth groups. On top of that, there were hundreds and thousands of examples where churches created targeted groups and ministries and events, all of them intended to attract unbelievers into the church in order to make it grow. Denominational leaders, parachurch groups, 
promoted their multi-billion dollar strategies through conventions and seminaries and conferences and curriculums that were marketed all across the United States, all backed up by fancy statistical reports, bar charts showing increases in membership and money and all sorts of things. With the constant challenge through all of its various communication outlets and sessions and outlines, all of it with the constant challenge to grow, grow, grow. And usually those with the most growth gained the most influence and their methods became the greatest focus of study. And conversely, when growth didn't, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, when growth did happen, it was almost always described in sociological factors, not theological factors. Now, each of these movements, revivalism, the moral majority, the church growth movement, they all had their distinct scope and their distinct methods. But there's a common thread that runs through all of them. Success is found in numbers. And whoever can come up with the best methodology for increasing numbers in their movement or their organization gains the greatest influence over the greatest number of churches and because of that can generate even in sometimes some cases the greatest number of dollars because almost everyone is interested in matching their success in numbers. Even now as we enter into the third decade of a new century, the church growth movement is beginning to wane and is now being replaced by a new progressivism within Christianity, but it's still defined largely in the same terms. It is presented mostly as a means of reaching more people, of increasing numbers, of stemming the tide of shrinking churches and the loss of cultural influence, of, of uh, uh, magnifying and ever-increasing the sway of the church in society and the world. But there, despite all of these movements and despite all of the interest that has gathered around them over the last century or so, it seems as if few people have ever stopped to ask the most serious and fundamental question, which is this, is growing the church the thing the Lord asks us to do? Should that be the focus of our mission? Are we asked or are we mandated to go out and increase our numbers as much as we can? Or should we understand failure and success in this endeavor primarily in sociological rather than theological terms? Is it the primary interest of the Lord to grow our numbers or are we to do all that we can to grow our numbers? And if we don't grow our numbers, are we looking at sociological reasons for why that's not happening? Or maybe a more pointed question is, if our job is to try to remove sociological barriers so that more people would be willing to follow, is that our job, I should say? Is our job to remove sociological 
barriers so that more people would be willing to follow? Well, our passage this morning, I think, answers these questions for us. Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22, give us not only a more clear picture of the gospel, which is important, but they also present to us, I think, incredibly helpful insights to understand what is going on in the church of America all around us, to discern what is our call and our mission, to be focused on what the Lord would have us to do. Now, let me begin by reading for us these verses, beginning in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 8. We read this, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of God has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now up to this point in Matthew's gospel, we haven't actually seen a lot of direct calls to follow Christ. We're back in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 4, we saw him calling Peter and Andrew and James and John, telling them while they're at their fishing nets to follow me. But apart from that, Matthew hasn't given us a lot of details about specific evangelistic conversations that Jesus had. But what we have seen all along the way are massive crowds, usually surrounding Jesus because he was healing, but we saw at the end of Matthew 4, in verse 24, his fame spread through all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And of course, Jesus responded to all of that with his great Sermon on the Mount where he uh, attempted to articulate the distinctions between what they had heard or what they had been grown up hearing previously taught from their scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders versus the gospel that he taught. And then here again, once that sermon was over, we read in Matthew chapter 8 that there are even more crowds, massive crowds, gathering to listen to him, gathering to be healed by him, gathering at the doorstep of Peter's house, all of them coming wave upon wave to follow Christ. It would seem as if everything was going swimmingly. So Matthew inserts this little episode here, among other things, to help us understand Jesus' attitude toward these crowds. He tells us that this was in response to Jesus seeing the crowd. And how he responds gives us tremendous insight. It makes us obvious that his goal in all of this is not to attract 
as many followers as he can. We see it demonstrated again and again throughout the gospel. Repeatedly, Jesus refuses to leverage these kinds of opportunities to take advantage of these kinds of swelling seasons of popularity. Jesus, we're told again and again, would not commit himself to these kinds of crowds. Why? Because he knew what was in man. He understood the tendency toward shallow confessions, superficial faith, temporal responses. And the last thing that he wanted was to simply gather around him a large number of people who are only superficially committed to his gospel and to his truth and to him in in general. John 2 tells us that when Jesus was in Jerusalem during the first Passover, when he began his ministry, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But John goes on to say in John 2.24, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. That is so incredibly important. Jesus' response to the crowds was, was governed by his basic understanding of man. His response to the crowds, we would say, was defined... And it was framed, not sociologically, but theologically, and we would say more specifically, anthropologically. As far as what he understood about man, he knew that human hearts were hardened against genuine repentance. He knew that the hearts of men were naturally self-interested and unstable. He knew that many people were attracted to him only because of the excitement and the glamour and the hope of personal benefit, maybe healing, maybe being fed. He knew that they were quick to jump on a bandwagon when things are going well, but just as soon as it becomes unpopular or demands sacrifice, they want out. He knew all of these things. He understood the crowds. He understood the responses. He understood all of it, not sociologically, but theologically. Many at first, Jesus understood, many at first would look alive They would come to him with glowing words of praise and confessions. They would go along while all of their compatriots were going along. But when their association with Christ began to cost them something, when associating with him threatened their personal stability or gain or standing, He knew that they would abandon him just as easily. And so he didn't entrust himself to men. That story in John 2 is not the exception, it's the rule. 
This is what you see happening in his ministry over and over and over again. It's so plain when you read through the Gospels. It's amazing how the evangelical church in America has missed it. No matter what its movement, no matter what its methodology, it has been driven by the singular principle of gathering as many people as they possibly can. Christ knew nothing of that kind of superficial preaching. And our text this morning helps us to see it again. Instead of welcoming those coming to him out of the crowd, even proclaiming their eagerness to follow him, Jesus confronts them to expose the shallowness of their commitment. We see Jesus here in an active effort to expose the bedrock of unbelief that lays under the shallow soil of their verbal commitments. And it comes to us, I think, really in two broad examples, exposing the kind of shallow responses that you might see when you're preaching the gospel, two broad categories of shallow response to the gospel, superficial responses that Jesus was trying to expose. The first one we could call those who are quick to promise devotion. Those who are quick to promise devotion. Matthew, as I said in verse 18, presents this crowd around Jesus and Jesus giving orders to go to the other side of the The other side, it says, it doesn't tell us the other side of what, but we know from the other Gospels, he's talking about the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The other side was Gergesa at the base of the Gadara Mountains. It was pagan territory. It was Gentile territory. And all of that makes it even more curious when you get to verse 19 and we read of a scribe coming to Jesus. A scribe who's saying to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go, which at this very moment meant going to Gentile territory, going to a place where by traditional Jewish standards, he could easily become defiled. He could become ritually unclean based on their traditions. And yet he was still remarkably interested in going. Scribes were the upper crust of society. They typically were the teachers, not the followers. In fact, they often had followers of their own. And they were, as a group, as a rule, particularly reluctant to following a teacher like Christ if for no other reason he had no credentials. He had no rabbinical training. They, on the other hand, were some of the most highly educated out of Jewish society. They were considered the scholarly community within Jewish society. They held almost all of the positions in upper levels of government. They were the lawyers. They were the judges in the courts of those days. They were considered experts and authorities in the law. And it would have been highly unusual for them to attach themselves to someone who had no formal education, who was basically known primarily as a carpenter, a laborer with his hands. These were the guys 
who wrote the most important books of the day, the most important documents, the things that everyone studies. It was upon their writings that all kinds of traditions had grown up around the law, these man-made opinions and rules and arguments that had been amassed through the years, and scribes were fiercely loyal to that religious tradition. They gave their lives to upholding it, to explaining it, to adjudicating it, to counseling people through it. And it was, in fact, this very system that Jesus was denouncing. He was denouncing their religious traditions. And so it's really remarkable that this guy is the guy who is coming up and proclaiming his interest to follow Jesus. We don't know his motives. It's possible that he was swept up in the emotion of the whole thing, all of the crowds seeming to, uh, seemingly giving Jesus their, uh, their adulation and their praise. Maybe he had seen Jesus' display of power, recognizing it in, as unique and maybe wanting to learn something more about it. Or maybe it was just the fact that having seen the crowds, this guy was simply wanting to find a way to expand his influence among them. Regardless of all this, no no matter what his motives were, the crowds who saw this were undoubtedly impressed. I'm sure Jesus' apostles were probably impressed. There was probably a buzz that began to spread throughout the crowds as people noted who it was who was speaking to Jesus at this point, professing his willingness to follow and to go. There there had to be an incredible amount of optimism and enthusiasm about what was going on. It's easy to imagine because it's easy to see in our own day Christians and churches who are so eager and so ready to embrace almost any famous personality who makes any form of verbal profession of faith in God or in Jesus Christ. They will run to lend those kinds of people their platform, put them on a pedestal, often doing no due diligence and willing many times to look the other way if there are any kind of inconsistencies in their lifestyle. It doesn't matter. It's all about gaining influence. Jesus, however, is not impressed. He understood that a verbal profession is meaningless if it's not followed up with genuine life commitment. So instead of rejoicing in this man's commitment, Jesus goes on the offensive and he responds to the scribe's declaration with a declaration of his own. So he informs this man that in spite of all of his popularity, in spite of even all of his authority and miracle-working power, His life is no life of ease. He had very few physical comforts. In fact, the animals lived better than he did. Verse 20, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. 
but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He tries to stop this prominent man in his footsteps. To arrest his attention, to slow him down, to make him think. Jesus has no interest in a quick decision, a quick promise of devotion. As much as he does in careful thought of the consequences. And so he tells this guy, if you follow me, you will most likely end up experiencing what I experience. And my experience is a lot of very difficult nights of sleep. Whereas most people at homes, they would go into their beds that they would lay their heads on every night. Jesus, it seems, often spent his night out in the cold. A commitment to the gospel meant foregoing comforts and luxuries and all the other things that people enjoyed Jesus, in fact, never even appears to own a home. We're told that he moved from his home in Nazareth to Capernaum, but the scriptures never mention him purchasing, owning, going to, or staying in his own house. He's presented a number of times as staying with others, even in Capernaum itself. It would seem that he stayed in the home of Peter, Or maybe sometimes Matthew. We know when he was in Jerusalem, he stayed with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, perhaps others. But we never hear about him owning a house. In fact, we assume that he spent many nights sleeping under the stars. Now, scribes, on the other hand, had a very different lifestyle. One piece of Jewish literature from the days known as Ben Sirach, says, for example, the wisdom of the scribe depends on the opportunity of leisure. And it goes on to describe how the scribe is supposed to pursue a life that is devoid of hard labor and the other things that occupy people, tilling the soil and supplying their own food or whatever, they are, according to Ben Sirach, accustomed to, quote, places of eminence in the public assembly and, quote, the courts of rulers. This is the life of a scribe. It was a life of ease. It was a life of privilege that this guy was used to. Not the kind of self-sacrifice, self-denial that Jesus lived in. He might have been willing to be involved in some sort of discipleship initiative, some sort of discipleship program with Jesus. But Jesus knew men well enough to recognize the points that needed challenge. Was he willing to give up his lifestyle? Was he willing to give up his comforts? Was he willing to give up his eminence? Now, in the modern evangelical church, no doubt, people would assume that the best approach here is to meet the guy where he is. 
Just, I mean, just meet him where he is. He may not be fully engaged, but if you could just get him into the circle, if you could just convince him to hang around for a while, if you could just let him think of himself as a part of the group, then maybe, possibly, eventually, he'll become a true disciple. But Jesus clearly isn't interested in the soft pitch. He's throwing heat. He's more interested in talking this guy out of following. He's way more interested in having him turn away now rather than becoming a part of the group and then abandoning Christ somewhere down the road. This is not necessarily the fast growth strategy. The pathway to following Jesus does not have an appealing doormat. It says, come you who are willing to deny yourself. Come if you want to take your cross. If you want to crucify yourself. If you want to be made a spectacle to the world. Those aren't encouraging invitations. Paul characterized his Christian life in Romans 8.36 when he says, As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep for the slaughter. Or as I read this morning from 2 Corinthians 4, we're given over to death always For Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. In other words, the highest goal of a Christian is not earthly comfort and ease. The highest goal of a Christian is to see the life of Christ being manifested through their own life to the extent that they're willing to set aside whatever kinds of comforts, whatever kinds of ease, whatever kinds of eminence and popularity might be theirs if they pursued the pathway of the world, they will set all of that aside because for them, the greatest treasure that they can have on this earth is to have the life of Christ shining and glowing through them. This is what they are pursuing. This is what they're about. Paul says, We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. So if he goes the pathway of death, we'll go there, because that's the pathway to find the life of Christ revealed in us. If he goes the pathway of deprivation, we'll go there because we've found the treasure of God in Christ Jesus and having the life of Christ within us, having our sins forgiven, having our eternal life secured, having our despair and guilt and shame wiped away. And having our old life of darkness and hardness and confusion 
all of that put away and the new life of Christ put on so that we're new creatures in Christ. All of that is what is worth all of the suffering for the believer. And this is what Jesus wanted to see. He promises life, but he's not interested in superficial followers. Because they will have no life. In fact, they'll just do harm to the overall message. People see them in their religious duties, but they still see the deadness in their heart and life. Well, this is a guy who was too quick to promise devotion. Jesus wanted to slow him down and have him think about it a little bit more. But we also see here another example of those who are slow to practice devotion. One, by, one guy's too quick, this guy's too slow. Because Matthew tells us in verse 21, another disciple came to Jesus, not one of the 12 apostles, but one of the people who were loosely associated with Jesus in that area, maybe had heard his sermons, probably had been present at some of his healings. And this guy apparently had heard Jesus' call to follow me, and he responds with an excuse, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus gives what had to be, by all accounts, a harsh reply. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, there's debate about what Jesus is asking or what this guy is asking and how Jesus is responding Most people assume the guy's father is already dead and his corpse is back at the home. They're just waiting on him to get back there so they can finalize the funeral. It's unlikely, though, if that was the case, this guy would probably be at the house mourning and taking part in the final preparations Because Jews normally buried their dead 24 to 48 hours after they died. There was no formal embalming process. You see that in a couple of examples, even in the New Testament. Lazarus, when he was dead, was laid in the tomb. Jesus waits two days And by the time he gets there, they tell him the tomb has already been shut and he's been in there a few days already and his body's already stinking. That's Lazarus in the tomb. Jesus, of course, we know, was taken down from the cross and laid in a tomb immediately. They would have prepared his body with a few spices had they had the time. They had to wait until the day after the Sabbath to do that, but there was no embalming process. Because it was the practice of Jews to bury their dead immediately. And so this man is probably not asking for a brief delay while he goes back and attends his father's funeral. He was asking for something much more significant. 
He was asking to wait on the demands of discipleship until his father passed away. It was the custom in those days as it is even today in the Middle East. It's a custom that a son would not venture outside the house until his father died lest he forfeit his inheritance. In order to receive the inheritance, he would have to stay. He would have to help his father in the family farm or the family business until his father died and the inheritance was distributed. This was part of the scandal, you remember, of the prodigal son. The prodigal son wanted to leave the home, but he didn't want to forfeit his inheritance. And so what he asked for, what he demanded, was his portion of the inheritance before he ever left the home, before his father ever died. And so this man is coming, and what he's saying is, I want to follow, I want to be your disciple, but I want to wait first. I want to wait until I receive my inheritance. I don't want to go right now, there would be too much financial loss, there would be too much financial instability maybe. He wanted to be associated with Christ, but he wanted the focus of his life to continue to be on his own financial prosperity, his own well-being, not on serving the Lord. So many face the demands of discipleship and obedience and they shrink back because of the cost of personal riches. Whether it is time invested serving the Lord in the body of Christ or whether it is prominence and standing that is forfeited because of your association with Christ or simply realizing that the Lord will ask of you the use not only of your time but even of your material possessions for His kingdom. And so there are those who are willing to make an early claim to Jesus as Lord, a claim to want to be a disciple. They want to have, if you will, convictions that are conveniently associated around him, but for practical reasons, they will put those convictions on hold. They'll put the the, the calling on hold. They'll resist conformity to Christ, the Lordship of Christ, because they want to achieve or maintain or enjoy a certain standing or certain financial stability even. They have intermediate plans. Plans to start a business. Plans to pursue a career. Plans to pay off debt. Plans to build a house. Plans to pursue a relationship. All kinds of plans that on the surface are seemingly well and good, but they all get in the way of unfettered devotion to Christ. And so they find themselves in one way or another telling the Lord, I understand what you want, but would you wait? Wait until I do such and such. Wait until I'm done building my own kingdom, empire, standing, 
Then I'll get serious. I'll get serious about serving you. I'll get serious about giving to you. I'll get serious about discipleship. I'll get serious about being involved with the body of Christ. I'll get serious about serving. They hold Christ at a distance. They're hesitant to fully commit. J.C. Ryle says nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who's willing to make a little profession and to talk fluently of experience. It actually weakens an army to have those who say they're ready for war but you know they're going to turn back at the first bullet. So Jesus tells this man, let the dead bury the dead. Let the dead bury the dead. Let the spiritually dead, that is, those who aren't alive, it's obvious for on its surface, Jesus is not talking about uh, uh, physically dead people. They can't bury other physically dead people. He's talking about the spiritually dead. Scripture says that we are all born that way. You're born into this world unresponsive to God. You're born into this world a hater of His law. You're born into this world rebellious against His morality. You're born into this world wanting to go your own way. And all of those things the scripture defines as spiritual death. They indicate a dead heart to God and they lead ultimately to death, eternal death. And so Jesus says, let the world take care of the world. Let the spiritually dead take care of the spiritually dead. Let them bury one another. Let them feed one another. Let them serve one another. Let them do whatever they're going to do. You can't make it your excuse to go out there and to serve all of them in whatever endeavor it is when it is bringing you in conflict with me. Your calling is to do what? To follow me. Or in Luke's gospel, The answer is more explicit. Go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. That's his response to this guy in Luke's gospel. That's what he sets in contrast to this man's consuming desire for financial stability through his inheritance. I've been amazed through the years to see what kind of compromises people will make when they begin to realize what identification with Christ and with his church involves. And they will set aside their commitment to the Lord, they think, until the winds of the storm blow over or until the earth beneath them is no longer quaking, until they can go and settle some inheritance or settle some financial goal or settle some relationship issues or do some business or whatever it might be. But Jesus is saying, if you are that kind of person, 
you're not ready to be one of my disciples. You have to be ready to do everything you can to go and proclaim the kingdom everywhere. Now, that doesn't mean that every one of us abandon all of our responsibility to family or to our employees. Don't interpret that to mean that all must go out and become missionaries. This is a call from God to serve Christ supremely. Not apart from your work necessarily, but through your work. Not apart from all relationships, but through those relationships, a willingness when necessary to abandon those things if they prevent you from his call. The bottom line is, when Christ calls, he calls you to kingdom priorities. He calls you to bow your knee before Him as your ultimate Lord. To see Him as your ultimate treasure. To cling to Him as your ultimate security. And to hope in Him for your final reward. That's the call of discipleship. That's the call of the true gospel. No matter what you've seen going on around you or heard from the TV screen, from other uh, places that are doing everything they can to offer you whatever kind of social connection they can in order to attract you to their cause, this is the call of Christ. The call of Christ is if you're not willing to abandon everything, You can't be his disciple. But if you do, if you do, he gives you spiritual life. He gives you spiritual life and life eternal. That's the gospel call. That is the message of Christ. That's the message for you this morning if you're here. And all you have ever seen is the gospel and the church through some sort of lens of social development, but here today, God is speaking to you. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about you and your separation from God, your alienation from God. And it's about Christ reconciling you to God. But it only comes for those who lay down their life to follow him. If God is calling you this morning, I want to encourage you, give us a chance to hear about it. We have a visitor reception at the end of the hallway there, down to the right. I'll be there. Others will be there. If you are here this morning and the Lord is calling you to this kind of devotion, we'd love to be able to hear, to be able to pray with you, to be able to rejoice in the spiritual life the Lord's giving you. Our precious Savior, you are our treasure. You are our hope. You are our life. Those of us who know you here, 
we can give testimony to the emptiness of the pursuits that were ours in the world before we came to know you. We tried in vain to fill our lives and our hearts. We tried in vain to find meaning in all that is passing away. We tried in vain to find life. And we didn't find it until we found you. In that sense, it's easy to leave behind all that is deceptive and all that is empty. Because in you we have found riches. Guard and protect us, Lord, as we are still confronted with those things, as there still are attempts to deceive us even now, to draw away our devotion from Christ. Remind us of the precious riches that are ours in Him. And we pray for those who are here today that are still seeking the empty and the vain. Lord, I pray that you would reveal the emptiness of their heart. Help them to see the deadness in their soul and revive them through the promises of life in Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.